December 12, 1930, Trinity College, Oxford. My dear and unfortunate successor, it is with regret that I imagine you, whoever you are, reading the account I must put down here. The regret is partly for myself, because I will surely be at least in trouble, maybe dead, or perhaps worse, if this is in your hands. But my regret is also for you, my yet unknown friend, because only by someone who needs such vile information will this letter someday be read. If you are not my successor in some other sense, you will soon be my heir, and I feel sorrow at bequeathing to another human being my own, perhaps unbelievable, experience of evil. Why I myself inherited it, I don't know, but I hope to discover that fact eventually. Perhaps in the course of writing to you, or perhaps in the course of further events. Elizabeth Kostova's first novel is The Historian. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about the setup of this novel. It's an epic search for Dracula in the modern world and in history. It is. I tried to, in this book, to combine the two legends we have of Dracula. One is the legend that Bram Stoker created. But he used a much older name, a noble name from Romanian history, a name that also was associated with its own legends, and that was the the name of Vlad the Impaler, Vlad Dracula of Wallachia. So I've tried in the historian to to play with a connection between these two. This is an interesting novel because it plays on the idea of a novel as a history and a story. It's also a novel of letters. Tell us a little bit about the time streams and the three sets of letters that comprise this novel, and how they layer together. It's quite fascinating. I'm glad you enjoyed that aspect of it. The novel really has four timelines in history, and those timelines are the 1970s, the 1950s, the 1930s, and the late 15th century when Vlad the Impaler lived. And I tried to to also blend these with a lot of different ways of telling the story. You're right, and those include letters, other kinds of documents, storytelling within the story. And the this is very much a tribute to Bram Stoker's Dracula, which, like many other Victorian novels, is told through documents and particularly letters and journals. I was really I really had the that book and also the Victorian epic novel in mind when I was working on the forms for this. It really does remind me the most of Dracula of any vampire novel I've read since I read Dracula. And one of the things that I found most fascinating about it was the way that this novel and Dracula both use documents, histories, books that may or may not exist, books real and invented. It reminded me a bit in a way of Borges, the Library of Babel, and also of Talon Akbar, Tertius Orbis. It really is. in it, The historian really is a novel in that tradition of collecting documents and pretending they're real. That's that's just so much fun, I think, both to write and, and I hope to read. And it also, as as you you've uh, brought up Borges it also is a is very much a tribute to libraries and the power of real documents which i was i was kind of imitating in the story 
It also reminds me quite a bit of the work of H.P. Lovecraft, who's a writer whose name I don't expect to come up with in terms of vampire novels. But a lot of his novels really did, and stories, really did turn around people sitting in a library reading things that scared them silly. And that <laughs> happens a lot in this novel, doesn't it? It does. And I think anybody who loves old books knows the kind of eerie feeling you get from them. A book is really a messenger from history. It's a voice from the past. And if you go far enough back into history, not very far, actually, we don't have technology to use to look back at anything before about 1880. But before that, you know, books are the only messengers we have in a way, uh, apart from architecture or artifacts. So to me, it's so amazing to open an old book and have the past kind of come out of it. And and even the smell of an old book is, is very alluring to me. It's an, it's an empowering experience to look straight into the past in the book. Well, yes, and I think it, we also, as readers, when we read an old book, we have the sense also of all the other readers who may have read it, readers we'll never know or know about, but who also got this message. History novels are also, in a sense, mysteries, and this book is layered like a mystery peeling away the parts of the story till we get to the core of the story. What kind of techniques did you use as a mystery writer to construct this story? In terms of classic mystery writing, I really went about it all wrong, <laughs> I have to say. I didn't know when I first started writing The Historian that there would be so much mystery involved in it. I knew that it would. I wanted it to be rich in history and travel, and I wanted to explore the historical evidence of the life of Vlad Dracula, and I wanted to play with the Stoker tradition. But I didn't know that that it would end up revolving partly around this mystery of what could what could have happened to Vlad Dracula's remains which is a true historical mystery and one that probably will never be satisfactorily solved. So I was deep in the book before I really realized as writer that there was going to be this major mystery at the heart of it, and that meant working back through a lot of the way I had thought about it. It was a fascinating process because as a literary writer, I had not expected to find myself writing either a supernatural book or a a book that had a mystery in it. But it, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and it's hard to think of a novel that doesn't have any mystery in it because one of the things that keeps us reading a novel is the question, what will happen to these people or what has happened to them in the past? In a sense, that's true. All novels are mysteries because it's the tension of trying to find out what's going to happen that keeps you going forward, keeps you reading. It's an interesting observation. I want to ask you a little bit about the travelogue aspect of this book. It's beautifully written, and I believe that you did some of the traveling that your character went through at about the same time period. Is that the case? Yes, it's true that that almost all the settings in the book are places I've either lived in or traveled to, and I still did tremendous amount of research to to make sure that the details I used were as accurate and vivid as possible, even if I had lived in a place... But during the time I was actually writing the book, I didn't have the time or money or freedom to travel much. These were earlier travels for other projects or fellowships or travels with my family when I was a child. So a lot of this experience was really kind of armchair travel for me, the way I hope it is for the reader, too. 
that's an interesting aspect because it's so vivid. Some of the descriptions, there's a description of a monastery with a pool that's just absolutely beautifully done. The, that monastery is a, a real monastery in the Pyrenees in France, in the in the French Pyrenees. And I did travel to that place. I changed the name, but um, almost nothing else about the monastery. It's it's very, very close to what you see when you go there. And for ex- just to give you an example of how I researched a place like that, I had been there for a day. That was an example of a place I hadn't lived, but I had walked up to it on foot up a mountain the way the characters do ultimately. And I, I had taken pictures. I had bought pictures of it. I had pamphlets. I looked at maps. I, I found it in a book and read some of its history. Some of the the timelines in the story I'm not old enough to encompass in my own experience. I do remember the 1970s in Eastern Europe at least a little bit because I was a child there then. But for the the 1950s and 30s and certainly for the late Middle Ages I had to do a lot of research about what a traveler would have found in those places at those times. And I always tried to make my research as three-dimensional as possible. So I read histories. I did a lot of traditional library research. But I also looked at old maps, old photographs. I found uh, movies that were filmed on location during those time periods, you know, wherever and whenever I could. And I also talked with longtime residents of some of these places, especially when I was trying to capture the feel of the East Bloc in the 1950s and the feel of a communist country at a time that was really deep Cold War. And for for those kinds of research, I found it very useful just to talk with people who had lived in those countries at those times and also with scholars who studied those periods. There's some very vivid scenes, and also I thought a very vivid character in there um, the gentleman Ranoff, who accompanies them in Bulgaria, is a really great character. Did you talk to somebody about this? How did you come up with this character? He's a state minder who's following these scholars around and peering over their shoulder and somewhat ominous. Ranoff is a kind of an ominous character, and he, um, I, I met bureaucrats like him when I first went to Bulgaria in 1989. Um, Bulgarians are mostly warm and wonderful people and not state bureaucrats, I should add. But in, in, those, in those communist or immediately post-communist days, there were still a, attitudes among bureaucrats that, that are reflected. And in other parts of Eastern Europe, I encountered this too, that reflected this kind of protectiveness or anti-Western feeling. I also wanted to give a sense of how sinister it was for the people who lived under East European communism, to to be and feel constantly watched. And that is one of the most kind of real supernatural experiences that, that people have, to have, to have a state watching over you. Now, that's really interesting that you bring that up, the real supernatural, because that's what I think one of the most effective parts of this book is the supernatural is very subdued. It's very much in the background, but it's buoyed up by all this ominous propaganda and paranoia that you have by virtue of the Cold War setting. Well, it's true. The Cold War setting in it in itself is just it's just an eerie setting. It's a strange world. And for us as Westerners, 
it's it's a hard world to understand. One of my goals in writing this book was deliberately not to write a traditional supernatural book and certainly not to write a horror book. In fact, I don't I I don't read horror as a genre myself. For one thing, I'm too frightened by it and for another thing, I find the horrors of history much more important and much more horrifying because they were real. And to me, history is the most important thing we can study as people because we should be in the business of preventing those horrors. Eastern Europe and East European communism really fascinate me because of that sort of, that sort of yeah, the, the real sinister quality of life under, under a totalitarian government. And I'm glad that you picked up on this, this urge I had to subdue this, the supernatural, because to me it's actually scarier when something is unknown or subtle than when something is kind of, you know, gore right on the page. And there were four or five images that I've carried around in my mind for years that to me are, are creepy, that I wanted to make sure I embedded in this book, and that were also an inspiration for it. And one of them is is a kind of my image or feeling, my guess at what it would feel like to be watched by a government all the time. Another is, and and of course, God forbid we should ever experience that in our own society. Another feeling, which is much more trivial, is um, I've always been fascinated by the dark crevice left by a book when you pull it off the shelf. It's it's a very ordinary sight. You know, you see it every day if you work among books or in, in libraries or you, you have books of your own. But to me, there's something so eerie, supernaturally, real, really supernatural, about that dark space that was filled by all this knowledge a couple of seconds ago. When you pull away a book, what is in that dark space then? It's anti-information. <laughs> right, maybe so. <laughs> Often in a vampire novel... The characters have never read a vampire novel. That's not the case in your novel. They're well versed. They're they're scholars of Stoker's Dracula. Well, the the scholars in my novel, yes, they're very concerned with informing themselves as well as they can because that that's the nature of scholars. The strange events set in motion at the beginning of the book are what force them to read Stoker for the first time. But then they do go on to use Stoker as as kind of information about traditional vampire lore. And Stoker did some very good research for his era on East European vampire lore and legends, legends that weren't really known in England up to that time, but of course were well known in traditional societies in Eastern Europe. Eventually somebody in this book looks at Stoker's notes. And I'm wondering, did you look at Stoker's notes yourself? I did, and it was really fascinating. His notes are are scattered around, but there are some in a wonderful museum and literary museum and library called the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia. And they they have preserved a, a small collection of the notes he made for Dracula. And one of the things that, that I found so interesting about his notes is that he actually went through, um, while he was plotting the novel, he went through and did a kind of day-by-day synopsis of what happened in the novel. And he used a kind of a day calendar, a printed day calendar, to do it. 
a lot of his notes are kind of chaotic, but that was a very meticulous oh, process for him. And I, I understood when I saw those notes, I understood how important it was to Stoker for this to be a kind of day-to-day horror in the that, that grows on the characters. In Stoker's novel, you really get this blow-by-blow of the action. Sometimes you get two journal entries from the same day. So it's almost minute-to-minute suspense. My novel spreads over a much longer period, of course, for the, in the characters' lives. As I read this book, I'm sitting in front of my computer, typing in names and looking stuff up on the Internet, running searches. And I'm wondering if that's one of the reasons you set the most present part of the novel back in the 1970s, so that the characters weren't burned with this uh, ability. <laughs> with <the> internet. <laughs> you know, that... I did. uh, That particular issue didn't cross my mind, although I think that's a very, very um, clever thing to think about, very perceptive, how different that would have been for these characters in 2000, 2005. But you're right. I did want to reach far, far enough back in the 20th century so that although most of us, at least my age and older, remember the 1970s, I wanted to have this feeling of of at least slight remoteness to the entrance to this story. And I think it really does point up how fast our world moves now, that we could find a period that, after all, is only 30 years ago, that we could find that kind of remote because of technology. That's one of the interesting things about this book is the telescoping of time because, as you say, the 70s seem almost as remote to us as the 1470s when Dracula <laughs> is weren't, weren't running about Wallachia. I wanted to ask you about libraries and the power of the library, the freedom inherent in owning a library. You, you work a lot with libraries in here and with librarians. You have some very memorable librarian figures. Librarians aren't often thought of as objects of fear, although Stephen King has an excellent uh, novella called The Library Police. I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit how you turn librarians around. Well, you know, I feel a little badly about what I did to librarians in this book <laughs> because I revere libraries and and love librarians, and I actually come from a family of librarians and have worked in libraries and bookstores myself. And I was trying to convey something about the power of knowledge you know, librarians are people who, who touch this vast array of knowledge day after day. They actually touch its sources physically. They take these books off the shelves and put them back and hand them to people and check them out to readers. And there's always been a fascination for me with the the a figure, a character who's just absolutely, literally surrounded by books all the time, surrounded by that knowledge. And I think libraries also make great creepy settings. You know, everyone's been back alone in the stack somewhere who's been to a big library and done research and thought, is that a footstep I heard? Or, you know, is there someone else in here in the stacks with me? They're, they're mysterious places. As a novel about historians and history, we're always told that history is written by the victors. But the corollary of that is that somebody who goes out and writes about history can create their own victory independent of the facts of what happened. And that seems to be a little bit about what's going on here, revising history subtly to conceal and also to reveal the objects and people and events that happened. You know, it's it's funny. I 
when I started reading more and more history to inform this book, it dawned on me after a while that history really is, among other things, just a long series of storytellings. We, there is no real history for us. There, there are only the voices and stories that, we, that are left over from it, and we reconstruct history as skillfully as possible from those stories. But reading history is like being told the best and longest and, you know, and, and absolutely inexhaustible story. And I wanted to convey in the novel some of the pleasure of being told an endless story. There's a story in here, The Chronicle of Zacharias. Was that real or imagined? <laughs> that is a fictional document, and all the documents in the book are fictional. They are created. And I had a funny experience with this. Um, I knew I was using a lot of uh, fictional documents and also fictional titles of, of works that are not quoted from but are, that, are, that are referred to in the book along the way that the scholars examine. There are a few real titles, too, in this book, I should say, um, from from real medieval primary sources, for example. But I had a funny experience. Um, the first translator who contacted me about uh, translating the book was um, the Dutch translator, and she was very meticulous. She did a wonderful job with this book. And she um, <laughs> she wrote to me, and she said, you know, I've been looking up the titles you refer to in your book, and I, I've noticed that some of them are are very hard to find. Could you write me a list of the titles that you made up that are created and a list of the titles that are real titles? Because in the case of real titles, I have to use the traditional Dutch version, which of course makes sense in a translation. So I sat down, and for the first time I turned all the way through my book, my manuscript, and I wrote down all the titles I had I had used in the book, and 95% of them were my creation. <laughs> so, which is not to say that I didn't use a lot of models for them very carefully. You know, I still tried to be accurate with tone, with facts, historical events and facts that are referred to. But the fact is that most real primary documents in history are kind of like archaeological sites. You dig through for a long time a lot of dry material to find that one nugget of something that tells you something new. So it wouldn't work very well in a novel. For a novel about Dracula and about evil, I found it interesting that, for me, the most evil presence in there and the scariest presence was Stalin. That's that's really interesting that you say that. I wanted the book to be haunted by the real monsters of history. And they, as I said before, they are the ones I think we should be paying attention to. The concept of an immortal Stalin is extremely frightening. And you play with a lot of frightening concepts as opposed to, as you said earlier, gore. Tell us a little bit about the sense of fear and evil and the pervasive paranoia that you want to create with this novel. I wanted to create a sense of fear and evil um, that was tied to history, as I've said. I also wanted to create a sense of the uncanny, which is a great 19th century tradition. And I promised myself when I started writing this book that I wouldn't spill more than a cup of blood 
in its pages. And I think you succeeded. I hope so. I, I tried hard. It's hard to measure. But I also wanted the book to convey a sense of love and hope. And it, as you know, it has a love story that crosses cultures and crosses the Iron Curtain, actually. Two love stories, really. And really two love stories. You're right. Maybe three. And it it also is a family story. It's it's a book about family bonds and and about and it's also a book in which scholars are trying to not only to delve into evil but to save one another from evil. And I think I hope that some of the some of the characters in this book grow from being simply interested in knowledge for its own sake to being interested in knowledge for the sake of rescuing people they love. In an average vampire novel, you expect the conflict to be between good and evil. And in this book, the conflict is really between ignorance and knowledge. (laughs) That's interesting. Well, isn't that the great conflict of of history? (laughs) (laughs) The other conflict, of course, that looms over this is East versus West. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about the Ottoman Empire, which looms large over this novel, and about its effect on Eastern Europe. Well, the Ottoman Empire, um, which is a fascinating civilization in itself, occupied parts of Eastern Europe for more than 500 years. And when you go to Eastern Europe today, you see an amazing evidence of an amazing mix of, of Ottoman traditions, traditions that came out of the Muslim world in this specifically Ottoman form, and traditions that came from Christian or, before that, pagan peoples in Eastern Europe. And there, over 500 years, there was a great merging of music, food, architecture, government traditions, and also a mingling of of people, of blood. You create some really interesting characters, and one of my favorite was Turgut, the scholar. Tell us a little the bit. Turkish of, professor. The Turkish mm-hmm. professor. Tell us a little bit about this character and how you researched and created him. Did he just rise out of the prose, or <laughs> did you meet somebody like him? Well, he. Um, I have visited Turkey, and although he's not based on anyone I met there, he has a lot of the characteristics I find so appealing in people from the Balkans, whether they are of whatever their ethnic origin. There's this. There's this great kind of um, warmth in Balkan people, and and vividness and expressiveness that I think is is just a characteristic of Balkan cultures. So he for me he's sort of the the emblem of those of those great qualities. Now, one thing you do a lot in this book is play with the vampire legend. You background it a lot, but tell us a little bit about what you've done because you very cleverly, I think, keep stuff out of the front, out of the spotlight. Do you keep the mystery alive? Tell us a little bit about why you decided to take that approach. I decided to take that approach of of putting some of the traditional vampire lore or interaction into the background or, or to weave it through other parts of the story for a couple reasons. And one is that it's very intimidating to write a novel about Dracula. You know, you this is a very, or about vampires, it's a very time-worn subject. And when you walk in, when you, it's, it's kind of like walking into a room that's already full of people, <laughs> both full of other authors and full of other 
other concepts of the vampire and of Dracula. And as a literary writer, as a writer who's, who's not a horror writer or a genre writer, and especially a writer with a serious interest in history, I knew that I was going to have to treat that part of the subject matter very differently from the, the um, traditional methods. And I also, as I said before, I like, I find the the subtle treatment of something or, or the the mysterious approach more more unnerving, you know, more uncanny than the direct bite on the neck. You know, tell us a little bit about what made you decide to start writing this novel. It took you ten years. That's a that's a big project. What what made you undertake this project? Did you think it would be that big when you started? Well, fortunately, I didn't know when I started that it would take me 10 years. I think if you knew something like that, you might quit in three weeks. But I did have a sense early on that it would be a long novel and that I wanted to spend as much time with it as as it took to really explore the story. And I did have in mind as I began it the the kind of long, we have all the time in the world for a story Victorian novel that I love. I really, as I got deep into it, I I learned a kind of patience that I hadn't had before as a writer. I learned to let it take its own time. I also was very busy while I was writing it for 10 years, and um, like most writers, I was working hard to make a living while, um, you know, to support this habit <laughs> of writing a long novel. And so I often had to work at odd moments. Sometimes there were days when I had only 20 minutes to spend on it. There were days when I got my teaching preparation done, for example, early, and I could spend three hours writing a chapter draft. Sometimes I had to get up early in the morning. Sometimes I had to wait to, to work late at night, which is an excellent time to work on a Dracula novel. Sometimes I had a notebook with me in the car while I drove to work. So one of the reasons it took so long was life, and that's something I know every writer understands. Another reason was that I did a lot of research, and research takes a long time. And if you're not a trained historian, it takes a long time to learn research methods as well as to master some material for your novel. Tell me, as you constructed this novel, put it together, did you see the whole outline from the beginning, or did you just start at the beginning and drive to the end and find, well, that's where I wound up? <laughs> that's a good question. I I began the novel with the structure in mind, a father telling a young daughter tales about Dracula and, and a gradual realization that Dracula himself is listening. That was the original idea for the book. And so since I was lucky enough to stumble on the structure and the story at the same time, I didn't have to fumble around for a structure. And that gave me a way to write from chapter to chapter. I didn't realize when I first started it that there would be a story within a story within a story. I knew that there would be the father's tales to the daughter and her tales. Um, But I didn't know, for example, right away, that another character from the 1930s, Professor Bartholomew Rossi, would come on stage and have his own story. And when that began, I realized this was going to be a complicated plot, and I began to plan a lot of the chapters ahead. And then about halfway through, I realized I could no longer hold this in my mind <laughs> for any given given period. And I, I made a big chart for my office wall that 
showed each of the three sections of the novel, the three projected sections, and the historical timelines, and what I wanted to have occur in each section, and, and also what voice it would be told in, so that I could look up a section on this chart and, and remind myself, well, this is this is uh, part of the father's story. In this section, he tells it in letters, and here's what has to happen. You make an odd choice here about using an unnamed narrator. Why? The narrator is unnamed, just as a kind of literary experiment, actually. I wanted to see if I could give her a full personality without the handle of a name. I was just curious about how much we use names as a character's identity. And I was also thinking about that kind of intimate feeling we have about our our own self, our own narrative in our own heads. Um, you know, when when you are thinking about something, you don't think to yourself, well, Rick is considering this particular problem. You're just being <laughs> Rick in your head, and we don't have names for ourselves in a way. So actually, that narrator doesn't have a name for me. I, I don't have a name for her, even in my imagination. What are you working on now? Are you working on another novel? I did start another novel as soon as I sold this one last summer. I just felt, I felt for one thing, I was going to miss this this novel, this process, after having lived with it for 10 years. And I also felt, and you know as a writer what this is like, you don't really feel like a writer unless you're actively writing. Writing is about writing. And whatever is happening in the outside world, whether you're having you're being published or not or having some success outside or not, there, it's ultimately still just you and the blank page. And that is that is the the joy of writing as well as the difficulty to sit down and fill that blank page with something that is somehow an original expression. So I did start again right away, but it's not a sequel <laughs> at all. It's a completely new experiment. It involves completely new historical topic, but it will also involve a 21st century story. A 21st century story. Will we have any of the uncanny within this novel? I think so, but in a completely different way. Wow, I'm looking forward to that. We've been speaking with Elizabeth Kostova. Her new novel is The Historian. Thanks for speaking with us, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me here, Rick.